You are listening to the Venture Scale SaaS Operator, the podcast where we interview founders who are actually in the trenches. We talk about the transparent journey of how they build their SaaS companies, how they grow them, and what they would do differently if they would do it all over. Hey folks, with us today, Noah from Privium. Super happy to have you on. Yeah, excited to be here. Awesome. Let's start with the most important thing. What problem does Privium solve for its customers? Well, it, it's really some basic questions that executives in most companies ask and have been asking a long time. And it's, is anyone using this stuff? And when I say stuff, the software tools that are, that are provided. And, you know, ultimately that extends out to all vendors and all recurring spend at the company, just the, the nature of continuing to pay a vendor over and over and over, whether that's every year, every month, and not having any insight into A, you know, when it comes to software, is anyone using it? And then B, why or why not? You know, that that insight to say, because there's, you know, so many reasons why, you know, um, it's not as simple as, oh, no one's using it, get rid of it. Or Oh, everyone uses it. They must love it. Keep it. And and that's typically how decisions are made today. A lot of anecdotes and asking, you know, business leads or, or department heads, uh, hey, is your team still using this particular software? Renewal's coming up. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think they like it. They're still using it. Okay, great. We'll keep paying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars in some case, right? And that that's the head scratcher that, that we're really solving for is is just saying, that's crazy. There's no way the future of B2B software and, and you know vendor management, for that matter, looks like this. There's got to be more data-driven decision-making. And so you know, that, that is what we're, we're digging in on. And, and we've now been at it long enough that we've, we've been able to narrow down and, and actually start to solve it. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, we found big problems that need solving. That's uh, step one, right, of being a founder. Uh, and then okay, great. How do we solve them and for who? And, and, and all of that, of course, is, is now starting to shape up for us. Yeah. Who's the typical customer of yours then? Like big enterprise or who's the typical uh, buyer for that? Yeah. The, the good and the bad of what we're doing is it applies to almost all companies. So, you know, there's, there's almost no, no limit to the market opportunity. They'll certainly... Uh, small, true small businesses, you know, the, the problem just isn't uh, a, a painful enough to, to really invest in a solution. But anything over, you know, call it 100 employees or so, you know, it, it's painful enough to, to want to solve it. Uh, that being said, we can't, you know, we can't be everything to everyone as an early stage company. We have to, we have to find our, our traction, our, our beachhead kind of markets to address. So, in terms of company size, it is a mix of mid-market and enterprise. The there's no doubt the problem scale with company size. Kind of the bigger bigger the company, the the bigger the problems. But you know that that's not always necessarily a good thing. Again, at our size, we have to be mindful of of the customers that we are taking on and and not uh, not overextending ourselves in terms of being able to properly onboard them and support them and make sure they're successful. So, so the, the mid market is, uh, is in just as big of a, a need, you know, has just as big of a need to, to solve these problems. And that's been a great place for us to start while also, 
you know, working with some enterprise customers as well. If you say mid-market, is that like 100 to 1,000 employees or how do you define that for, for yourself? Yeah, good, good question. Everyone kind of has their own definitions of these things, I think. And, and I, uh, I, for one, kind of hate the definitions that are broadly out there because we basically put out all companies into three buckets. It's like, oh, is it SMB, mid-market or enterprise? And that's just so not helpful um, because really there's probably at least, you know, five, if not 10 different segments within those. Uh, but yeah, for, for our purposes, you can call it a hundred to a thousand employees. And then, you know, to me, enterprise would be like one to 5,000 maybe. And then large enterprise would be above that. Cause you know, that, that's the other thing that always makes me laugh a little, you know, coming from uh, software and SaaS sales uh, experience in my career and, and selling to, to companies of all sizes. It's like, oh, it's an enterprise customer. And this one's, you know, 1500 employees and then the next one oh this is enterprise customer it's 15000 employees it's like it's literally <laughs> 10 times bigger and we're just calling it the same thing like those companies have yeah. vastly different needs and and uh, structures and all those things yeah the 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 first one is like closer to an smb compared to the second enterprise <laughs> yeah and and those you know those details really matter when you for all things right how to how to sell to those companies and the kind of layers of of management and decision making and who owns budgets and all that looks differently. And then, you know, from a from a customer standpoint, you know, and onboarding and supporting, you know, it, it's different. It, it really is. So, you know, we're we're trying to be mindful of that and and grow responsibly <laughs> and uh, you know, in in kind of the investor language, you know, ensure that we're the customers we land, we're retaining them and we don't have the the leaky bucket of, oh, great, we landed all these customers. And then a year later, oh, great, half of them didn't stick with us because we weren't able yeah. to deliver you know, what we promised. And I think there's just too much of that. If you need to hire the right developers and ship fast, then React Squad is for you. A boutique agency that specializes in React and only works with fast growth startups. Visit reactsquad.io to learn more. I would love to go back to the beginning because you mentioned it already and I also noted that down specifically that you have an enterprise sales background and now you're basically offering a tool for the enterprise. How, a two-part question. First of how did you stumble upon the problem? And secondly, how did you make the jump from being an enterprise sales to being a founder then in that space? Yeah, the the problem started to become quite obvious in in doing um, the jobs that I, that I was doing in sales and and the the simplest explanation is I had this observation when I was working with I had roles where I, I both sold to new customers and retained accounts and continued to own the account and you know the first time something is, for my purpose, sold and, and for, for the company's purpose, uh, you know, acquired and brought into the company in terms of a new SaaS or, or software tool. There's a lot of scrutiny and diligence, and you know, multiple stakeholders involved, you know, to really make sure that the budget is being spent responsibly. Right? Hey, this isn't in the budget yet, so if we're going to purchase something new, and of course, you know, we're not talking about just um, small purchase, but but something over, you know, call it. 25, 30,000, like anything over that starts to require, you know, multiple 
stakeholders and approvals. And so all that makes sense, right? And as a, an account executive, a huge part of your job is working with that champion or, or whoever it is that you know has identified uh, something that your particular solution can can do for them and helping them to navigate internally. Okay, how do we get this done? You want it, I want it. Um, we got to get approvals, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so part of that is you you work with them to build a business case and say, all right, how do we justify budget? Well, if you you know uh, implement this particular tool, you know it's going to whatever it may be, right? Uh, increase operational efficiency, and therefore you know we can do some math and, and justify the budget, or it's going to help you um, grow your pipeline or, or close more deals, whatever it is that the the value prop is. You build the business case, right? You get the deal done, great. You know that's that's the job as an account executive. It's how, that's when you get paid. Well, now, you know, most in most cases, we're talking about a one-year contract, right? Of course, there's there's multi-year deals, and and for smaller uh, things, there's there's less than one year. But for all intents and purposes, most things are happening on an annual renewal cycle. We would come back around, you know, now in kind of the account manager. Uh, aspect, I come back around to renewal, and, and I'm still working with the same, you know, the same stakeholder or stakeholders, and say, okay, great, you know, we ten months ago, eleven months ago, we built this great business case, we identified the KPIs this is going to impact, and you know, we did all these things. You know, how are we doing? Are we hitting? You know, are we doing the things we said we were going to do? And no one ever has the answers, right? It, it becomes once it's in the budget, once that. The, you know, the work is done the first time, it's out of sight, out of mind. It's like on to the next shiny thing. And of course, that makes the SaaS world go round. When you look at, you know, at the SaaS explosion, a lot of it, you know, that of course the, the vendors don't want to talk about is, you know, the recurring nature and the opaque, you know, nature of success metrics, right? Like the the vendors themselves and customer success teams have tools to to say, oh, this account's at risk of turning, and um, you know, let's let's put our best team on it. Let's cherry pick the best data points and and make sure they don't turn. Right, they have that data as a customer. Most cases, it's it's kind of like, oh, uh, you know, I think people, are, you know, like I said earlier, right? It's anecdotes. So that was the real head scratch for me. I said, "Wow, this is crazy." I mean, great, I, you know, I'm making good money in this career with this kind of dynamic, but I just don't think that's right like it, it feels really out of balance with the access to information and and the vendors kind of holding all the cards in that way and it was frustrating you know from an aspect of the you know a lot of bad software out there like tools that don't do the things that they promise it's a lot of you know smoke and mirrors uh the investments are in sales and marketing and you know the product kind of goes by the wayside and maybe it used to be good, but it hasn't kept up. You know, there's all these things and I just said, man, this is crazy. Like there's got to be a better way where the vendors and the products that actually, you know, solve problems and and customers go, wow, I, I love using this tool. It, it makes my job easier. Like those should be the ones winning categories and, and really, um, you know, be the no brainer renewals. And that's just not the case today. So, so that's where we really kind of dove in on this and said, well, you know, if if that's the the future we kind of envision, just a a more level playing field, and 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 being able to you know use that as a a catalyst to highlight the the products that are very good and the vendors that are holding up there into the bargain. Well, you know, what is the information that 
that needs to be provided, you know, to the the, the customers, the one use using these things to to actually, you know, start to surface some of those insights. And so, yeah, it was it was a bit of a journey from, you know, just head scratching as a account executive going, hmm, I think there's something here. This is a huge problem, and you know, it it's been labeled different things, right? Like I'm speaking to kind of the specifics of of what Privium is is working on, but the broader landscape of SaaS sprawl and this nature of just buying more and more tools and, and you know, not having great processes or kind of centralized uh, IT and, and things like that. Like there's a lot of different problems that have that have uh come from this this general basically, you know, the the switch to everything being a subscription and on a renewal cycle. But, you know, we're we're kind of focused on that that particular um you know, sliver with, within the broader space because there's there's security implications. There's you know all sorts of kind of uh, reasons why companies are are interested in in getting a better handle on on their spend and and the different tools and and plenty of other you know startups and and companies out there focused on some of those other areas as well. And then, how did you initially turn that into an idea? I mean, you. If I'm right, you started like a bit more than a year ago officially. So how, how did you initially fund it and like got it off the ground? Yeah. So I was a founder once before for, for context. It it uh been a while, it was about 10 years ago. It was a small e-commerce company, nothing that was was truly scalable or or venture backed or anything, but I I do you know, have a couple of, of years of experience operationally of, of starting something and running it. And, and more importantly, I 100% have the founder itch or the gene or whatever it is that, you know, people talk about where I just know that this is like what I should be doing. I, I, I've tried, I've tried just having a job and, and being, you know, the good employee and, you know, and I was quite successful in sales, but I always, want to solve problems and you know when you're just a, uh, an employee uh, you don't really get to solve many problems and it, it becomes quite frustrating and I'm sure other entrepreneurs founders can can um, you know that that probably resonates because there really is something to it you know that it's hard to describe but you know throughout my career I would try to do more and say okay hey I noticed you know there's a process here that could be improved could we try this or I noticed something with the product. Hey, I think we, should, you know, I would try to be the intrapreneur as the, <laughs> I think there's a, a term now of like, you know, being an entrepreneur within a larger organization and, you know, didn't really have many opportunities, very, very kind of stifling and hey, just, you know, do your job and, and we'll worry about the rest kind of attitude. So I always knew that I wanted to get back to being a founder and, you know, it was a matter of, all all the factors, all, you know, finding the right problem to solve, and and also just being in a position where I could afford, you know, to take the risk and and uh, and importantly, you know, have the support of my wife to <laughs> to take the risk and and all that. So so things started to line up where I noticed, you know, the the problems was getting to a place where it seemed like we could you know, afford to take a little risk and, and see if, if we can make something happen. And so, um, yeah, it, it wasn't all that, you know, kind of out of nowhere in that way. It was kind of a, a long time coming and, and very exciting for me to find the the space and the, and the problem that I wanted to dig into and, 
in terms of transitioning, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think unless you're a, you know, serial founder and, and you've got it kind of down to a, a science where you know exactly, okay, here's step one, two, three, and go roll. I think for, for most everyone else, it's always a little messy and ugly at the beginning. Um, you know, so, so I don't, uh, I don't have any, you know, uh, secret tips there. I just, uh, the, the first step for me was finding a co-founder that I knew and trusted and could communicate with and, and, um, less about a resume and more about, Hey, I know this is going to be hard. I know there's going to be uh, tough decisions and hard conversations and there's going to be days that uh, it feels like you're going crazy and you want to quit and all those things. And, uh, if I'm, you know, I a want a co-founder. I don't want to be a solo founder in that journey. Um, and B, you know, more than their skills, I want to know that it's a partner. You know that we can have those conversations and and make decisions, and we're not going to have any of that kind of founder conflict that can happen. So, lucky for me, a, a good friend that I've known since high school um, was in a, a position in his life to to take the the risk as well. And so, Seth is Seth Barkley is my co-founder, and it also you know works out that he has a a complementary skill set, something that I don't as a, a designer. You know, he was the global principal designer at Sabre um, for for a good part of his career. So, you know, we were we are kind of an odd team without a true technical co-founder. But you know, between us, we we had enough technical know how to to make those first take those first steps between prototypes and testing things and just seeing kind of what what the direction was going to look like, you know, before needing a, a, a true engineer, you know, on the team. I would love to double click on that point because I mean, the typical co-founder duo is like the sales and marketing guy and the, the tech guy, the CTO type of guy. Right. How do you manage that you don't have the typical startup CTO slash technical co-founder? It's been tough. You know, there's there's no doubt, you know, in a perfect world, Seth would have that CTO experience, right? And that would, that would be the classic pairing. And and that's why I was kind of explaining I I over-indexed on the person and, you know, being able to um navigate this journey as a as a team rather than look for a particular, you know, skill set or resume. Um, but there's no doubt that it's had its challenges, you know, from from just some of the obvious things of, of needing, <clears throat> excuse me, needing to rely on external, you know, technical resources, contractors and fractional and, and these things much earlier than we'd like to. Um, and also from a, a fundraising perspective, you know, uh, understandably for, for some VCs, it's a non-starter, you know, they say, Hey, you know, you're building a software company. You don't have a technical founder, you know, until you have, and it doesn't have to be a founder per se, right? But until you have that person on the team full time, like highly invested, you know that that was a a barrier for for raising, you know, early on. So it, it's been a challenge, but you know that's there's always challenges. So that's just kind of been been one of ours, and and we've navigated it, and now we have an amazing lead engineer, Omar, who you know um, really owns that that part and, and can you know, build everything that we need to build, of course, within, within the 
reason for for one a one man team, but but we're now bringing on some some other resources to to support him. And you know, uh, I think for the most part, we're over that hump of hey, we don't have that person in house, and you know, learned a lot of lessons along the way. And now, you know, it's it's more of how do we build out the engineering team around him and and you know continue to invest and grow that part of the business any tips for the non-technical founders listening who are in the similar position who who are still looking for their own but they're all mar basically so how, how did you find him like any any learnings you can share there yeah. um yeah i mean it is it is very 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 hard you know uh, that's the <laughs> that's the truth and um the uh, i'll give a quick kind of summary of of our journey in that way uh last year 22 spent a lot of time on the yc co-founder matching platform so they have a startup school online and, and part of that is co-founder matching kind of like a dating a dating app uh concept where you have your you know skills and and resume or whatever and and can select filters and criteria to to match with others and and so did that quite a bit because at that stage we were we were totally open to a third founder and um you know thought we could potentially find someone through through something like that the the challenges there were we for whatever reason like at the earliest stages we just weren't able to find the right person and then as you know we weren't going to wait to to keep moving forward so we kept working you know, in parallel, hoping we would find that person. And the further we made progress, the less, um, the seemingly less useful that channel was for us to find someone because most people using that wanted like start from scratch day one, right? They want three guys in a, three guys at a whiteboard kind of stage. And and that that's fine. Right. But that I probably talked to 50 or 60 different people through that. Um, and then realize like, okay, this isn't the right channel for us. We're now, you know, still very, very early, but it, we're just not um, at the stage for this platform. So then we tried, you know, different things. We tried um, a fractional CTO for a while and, and that was, that was fine. You know, it, it, it was fine for the time period, but it was always going to be a short term thing and, and it was expensive. You know, that's the, the trade off with, with fractional is typically, you know, you're paying them an hourly rate and, and you can get someone with a great experience and, and all of that, but, but it's expensive. So, um, we did that for a while. We, we tried finding, you know, contracted resources through various ways, you know, our network and, and things and, you know, to, to varying degrees of success. It was mostly just building early prototypes and, and starting to, to build some MVPs and, and so it worked okay, but ultimately, you know, you just don't get, you don't get the same level of, um, what would I say? It's not like commitment. I guess just focus, like, you know, skin in the game, if you will. If, if you're a contracted resource, you know, you care about it while you're working on it and then you close your laptop and you don't think about it anymore, right? Whereas if you're on something full time and have equity, then, you know, you, you kind of can think about solving the problems and how to work on things, even when you're not at your computer, you know, that's a big difference. But ultimately, um, 
we found Omar through WellFound, which is the AngelList job site. It used to just be AngelList Jobs, I think, and um, you know had a had a uh, job post and interviewed a ton of people. I mean, we 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 looked on LinkedIn as well, but ultimately WellFound was a better better channel for this stage and um and yeah i mean you know eventually through through the interview process found that that he was the right guy now to explain you know the the kind of criteria of what does that profile look like for um you know he's not a co-founder but he is effectively a founding engineer you know he's the first full-time engineer and lead software engineer is his official title and he has a big you know, chunk of equity. It's not just your kind of normal uh, early employee. You know, it's it's tricky. It was an art. You know, I think um, more than a science because and and some of that I certainly learned. I had never hired, you know, for technical roles before. So between all of the the co-founder conversations and and then all of the applicants and interviews, I mean, well over a hundred people that that I talked to, and I mean, probably looked at two or three times that in terms of resumes. So eventually you start, you know, to get a better sense of what combination of skills and experience are the best um, fit, but also like, what is that even more importantly, like what is the the profile of the, the person need to look like to be successful at this stage? Because yes, you need someone that's a, a very good um, full stack engineer, but you know, some of the, the risk, profile can be easily screened by just saying very explicitly in the job post and all that like hey this is what you're signing up for you're the first one here's you know <laughs> it should be clear this is not like just joining an, a big company but at the same time you know risk profile is just one part of it it's like okay you're willing to take the risk which means lower salary of course like we can't pay you what you know omar was at wayfair for a long time was a, a tech lead for wayfair and of course, we can't pay anything like Wayfair could pay. So, so that's part of it is the trade-off, but also, hey, you know, we don't have all the answers. We need you. Like, we don't just have a spec and hand it to you and say, here, go build this. You know, a lot of it's conversation saying, hey, we're we're trying to solve XYZ for the customer. And here's, you know, some potential ways we could do that. But ultimately, we need Omar to take that information, go do research and come back and, and kind of make a recommendation say, Hey, you know, I don't think X and Y are going to be a viable path, you know, going to take too long, be too expensive or, or there's just a, a technology limitation. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's the profile that became really tricky, but you know, back to your, your question of, well, when I tell a, a non-technical founder, um, if you can find, you know, the right person, early where they can be a true technical founder and build together. I think that's ideal, but it's, it's just so hard to do because it may be a great person for a month. And then you realize like, Oh, you have different ideas or you don't communicate. Well, you know, there's a ton of stories out there of just co-founder conflict. So, you know, if you don't already have that person in your network or you haven't worked with them before and kind of know, communication style and personality and all that, then, you know, it's a huge risk to spend weeks or months or even years with someone and then realize, oh no, I don't want to be in business with them. Right. And now 
now you're you are very much in business with them so yeah unfortunately there there is no good answers you know get get good mentors get people <laughs> around you who have who've done it and um and you know listen listen that, that's the biggest thing is there's a lot of uh found people with the, the founder mentality tend to be kind of hard-headed and stubborn and want to go you know sure that that we know how to do it and want to just no no i don't i don't need i don't need to listen to you i can just go do it right and it's like as long as you have that mentality of surrounding yourself with smart people who've who've accomplished things you want to accomplish and you actually stop and listen when they talk you know then i think that's the the biggest key to success yeah and one i would love to pick one nugget out of there especially for critical hires you said you interviewed a hundred people and that's like a thing where every year the number of people i interview for a role increases like literally in like in the when i started if you had a pulse i would hire you basically <laughs> and now it's also like we always hire engineers so it's like hundreds of like literally a thousand cvs hundreds of interviews and so on it's so like the the amount of work it takes versus what you think on the outside yeah. if you haven't done it before is just ridiculous yeah for sure and and of course it it looks a little bit different if you have the background experience of hiring for those roles then of course you know you learn how to to filter better and and how to you know not waste time on on interviews that you just shouldn't be that aren't going to be a fit but yeah i mean for for me you know having never interviewed for those roles there was just a ton of learning of okay it's one thing if the resume says i've you know i've used these particular tech stacks or or whatever you know it's easy to get enamored with logos and names oh yeah. my gosh they worked at amazon or google or whatever it's like you know ultimately stuff like that is like that's usually a bad thing because if you're an engineer at amazon you're one of like what a hundred thousand engineers or something and now you're going to be the only one like obviously not the same person right but yeah i mean if i think about where i do have experience of, of hiring for sales roles you know um it does shrink it down a little bit but to your point it's like i think ultimately at least in the the sales roles and probably a lot of the go-to-market roles some people are very good interviewers and you know i that's the first thing for me is separating those two and saying i'm not hiring you to be or i'm, I'm sorry interviewee not interviewer right i'm not hiring yep. you to be a full-time interviewee so um you may be amazing but this is not the job right like i need to actually test you on doing the job not just how well can you answer my questions and, and be likable because that's usually where you get burned Yep, especially sales guys can be very likable at interviews. But yeah, I think I think it's super important. I, I I fully agree there. And then because we're coming close to time, let's sure. do as the final question: If you would have to do the whole thing all over again, what's the thing you would do most differently? Yeah, it's there's a lot of things, of course. Um, and I I will say I don't always agree with some of the the VC uh, mentality on, on on things broadly, but one one area where I, I do agree and, and see clearly now why they um, index towards 
multiple uh, founders who have had multiple, you know, um, companies, right? Co-founded multiple companies. I I see how the learned experience you do just kind of get better inevitably, right? I mean, if you've done it twice, you know, you're going to be better the third time. If you've done it three times, you're going to be better the fourth, you know, in most cases. So, so I do see that now. Um, And, you know, the big things that come to mind for me are, I definitely assumed too much at the beginning. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, I had a successful career in sales for 10 years, you know, was, was always a top performer, was always very, you know, respected at, at some, some small startups, but also some, you know, bigger name tech companies. And in, in doing so, you know, built out a very good network of, of folks who have been, you know, very successful in tech in terms of wealth, you know, between stock and, and uh, salary and all those things. Right. So one thing I assumed that was incorrect was, okay, I have this great network, people who have worked with me, who've seen, you know, um, what I'm capable of and, and all those things, like I'll be able to go get some, some checks, right. I'll be able to go get some, some, uh, friends and family checks, they call them right early on. And ultimately I was able to get a couple, but you know, it was way harder than I thought it was going to be. And, and literally only two, I only got two and I, you know, I thought I would get 10, you know? So, um, so that was a big eye opener for me. Like, okay, wow. Like just because a, just because people have that kind of money doesn't necessarily mean they care to invest in, in something like this, right? Like just don't want to be an early stage investor and, and that's certainly fine. But, um, that was one area where, you know, in hindsight, I would, I would, uh, approach that differently. And then also the, the other piece of that is I very much knew the problems and, but didn't know how I was going to solve them necessarily. Right. And I, I thought, like I said, with, you know, my network and experience and all that by highlighting the problems and saying, Hey, I've seen these problems. I know they need solving. I know this is a huge market. I, you know, the, the pieces that I knew, I thought that would be enough to kind of get some fundraising kicked off and start the journey. And it, it was not, you know, everyone said it one way or another said, yeah, but how are you going to solve it? And I didn't have that answer yet. And so, yeah, in, you know, in hindsight, like if in sometime in the future, I'm, I'm founding something else. You know, I would, I would not make any of those assumptions and I would have things super buttoned up from a, here's a problem. Here's how we're going to solve it. You know, here's the, all the things that, that people want to see in a deck, you know, I kind of took that stuff for granted and, uh, and was wrong. And then, you know, you take that plus 18 months of a very, very challenging fundraising environment, just broadly, um, you know, that's, that's been our journey so far. And now we're, uh, I think, as I said earlier, hopefully pass those initial hurdles and hoping for a little, uh, a little help from the macro environment going into next year and, you know, get those tailwinds. Amazing. And then Noah, thanks a ton for being though so open and thanks for coming on today. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Great meeting you. If you like this episode, then you'll love the SaaS operator. 
a weekly newsletter brought to you by Early Node with actionable insights from SaaS experts in the industry delivered right to your inbox every Tuesday for free. Visit earlynode.com to subscribe.